For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with rock singer John Waite about 40 years of missing you. Susan Clausen, the Managing Artistic Director of the Invisible Theater, talks about becoming Hollywood icon Edith Head on stage. Penelope Starr shares about the 20th anniversary of her creation, Odyssey Storytelling. And a first-hand story about how it all got started for famed author Luis Alberto Urea. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Missing You became a number one song in 1984, and the video remained in heavy rotation on MTV. It wasn't singer and songwriter John Waite's first brush with hit records. His previous work with a band called The Babies included rock radio mainstays like Isn't It Time and Every Time I Think of You. You can still hear those songs being played often today. But the success of Missing You was so great it transformed his career. John Waite has never stopped recording, touring, and performing, and he's bringing an evening of music called 40 Years of Missing You to the Rialto Theater next week. I was happy to talk with him about his long and winding career. It's been a long career. There's been a a tremendous amount of um, music made over sort of 45 years. And um, so when you finally put it together to go on stage, you're taking songs from different periods. And I think um, the songs have stood the test of time. I think from every time I think you right through to last year's EP that came out, I think it all stands up. I think it's easy to put a set together of 90 minutes plus of songs that hold together. And so you are playing songs from the baby's era? Oh, yeah. I mean, you couldn't not do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a couple of times in my life, uh, I haven't read the set list on on the monitor speakers and um, missed out a song. In fact, in Belgium, uh, we would finish the show, packed house. We ran downstairs to the downstairs dressing room, and the drummer turned to me and said, hey, we didn't play Missing You, or Every Time I Think of You. And we ran back upstairs and played them both, the house just exploded and we, you know we went and had dinner but um so there's so many songs you don't really fix out on one song it's um it's a big set yeah that's the thing i learned from listening to the baby's anthology was how many songs like midnight rendezvous and you know back of my feet that i was like i know these songs i just never put it together that it came from this creative musical unit before yeah, the babies were very underrated, and I think we were. We had a struggle. Um, we changed the lineup after about two years in America, two and a half years, and the band expanded, and be, we had a really big following. But I think visually, it looked a lot different. So people didn't put the things together when they look back now. John, when was it that you got the first taste of <laughs> rock and roll glory? When did when did you stand on a stage and think? This feels right. This is where I want to be. I was about 13 or 12, but my brother's band <laughs> were playing at a local youth club, yeah. and you couldn't buy beer, and they were old enough to drink beer, and the bass player wanted to go out and get a pint of beer. So he left and didn't come back for like an hour, and uh, my brother Joe uh, hung his bass around my neck and said, play this note. 
and just keep playing. And it was Jimi Hendrix's third stone from the sun. It was just a, a jamming one uh, key. I stood there and played, and the drums came in, and it was an eye opener. You know, all the girls stopped doing what they were doing and came and watched me, and my friends were like five feet away. And it was a really kind of, it wasn't so much the response, it was like I just knew I could do it. And uh, a 13 year old John Wett became like a, a 13 year old bass playing singer. You know? <laughs> Suddenly you found your identity. Yeah, if you like. I mean, I was into music all my life, but uh, just waiting in the wings to, to jump on stage, really. That's a tremendous story. And, of course, your painting, which uh, comes across in the film about you, um, how important that is to your creative life. And I think it's interesting because one side of your creativity is focused on communication, words, singing, playing, and then the other side of your life is silent. There is that. Yeah, I mean, that's like, um, it's just something I have. I went to art school for four years, got a diploma, whatever that means, in fine art. And um, But I was drawn to painting uh, just as a little kid. I mean, the, the bohemian aspect of the world was going to art school and, and listening to blues music. And I was only like six or seven, but my cousin Michael went to art school. And I adored him. You know, I worshipped Michael. He was fantastic. He was um, very kind to me. He showed me his paintings and how to draw and stuff. And then when I was 15, I entered the uh, the exam to get in, which was really just an interview and showing them as many, many pieces of work as you could. And uh, I couldn't believe it. I got in. And the next four years were spent painting and learning how to uh, life class, you know, painting new models, and designs, and setting type, and it was really an extraordinary four years, you know. But we all listened to music so much, the two overlapped. We were painting, we were listening to to Free and the Who and the Beatles and all the great bands from back then, the Yardbirds, the Pretty Things. Yeah, and um, the two just melded together. I feel like when I watch you perform that Roger Daltrey was a big influence on you, on your, your presence. I think all the British singers, the really great ones like Joe Cocker, Paul Rogers, Robert Plant, there was just so many. I mean, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. all those singers were, were British, and yet they were all <laughs> influenced enormously by uh, American blues. It was just what we listened to going forward into that time. We all were listening to the same stuff. But what happened in Britain was that it came out sounding completely different, and every band sounded completely different. There was no excuse for sounding like somebody else. If you had the audacity to do that, you'd get roasted alive, you know. (laughs) So you had to be original, you know. So I am influenced by uh, folk music, Celtic music, Black music and, and country, you know? Yeah. And in, in the documentary, I learned even cowboy music. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, Marty Robbins was huge. And all the other guys that sang. I mean, can you imagine being six and hearing ghost riders in the sky? You know, just fire your imagination, you know? It was, it was wonderful. In the documentary that was made about you, The Hard Way, you are not afraid to be vulnerable. And it catches you and your love at a time when the pandemic 
was emerging and we were all panicked and fearful. And it really displays that side of you. Did you have any apprehension about being in that film and showing who you are? I didn't want it to be a glass piece. I knew that much. I thought the darker it was, the better it would be. Because I'm pretty upbeat, so it wouldn't be dark for too long. But I think um, everybody was kind of pinned to the wall. Nobody knew if there was a vaccine. People were dying. And you couldn't go out apart from like an hour a day in the morning to go to the store. So the streets were just empty. It was harsh, you know, month after month of staying in. Same thing happening every day, you know I mean? But I did want the documentary to be truthful. Oh, what's the point, really? Well, the documentary really does capture the fact that touring and being an entertainer and a singer is so deeply ingrained in your personality that you were like a caged tiger. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I suppose it was such a relief to get back out. We went back early, probably a couple of months before it was legal, but we were hired to play a, a private gig on this big country estate for this millionaire guy. That felt like I couldn't remember how to play the guitar. And I was nervous. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a bit of a mess, but everybody loved it. But it was like, how soon you forget. It isn't like riding a bike. I think the great thing about being me now is that I've had uh, 40 years, 45 years of playing live. And um, I just know how to do what I do. And the more you do it, the better it gets. And I don't even think about it now. I don't even question anything that's happening around me i just keep saying it's um it's the kind of confidence you only get through experience (laughs) and the words are always there for you you you, when you start a song the words don't betray you you know i said the other day to myself that the only time i'm really myself really true is when i'm singing and it's a mystical kind of experience because you're reaching into yourself for all sorts of images the songs mean, and you're reliving them on stage in the back of your head. And yet, there's a calmness. You're almost like reading a book inside, but the outside is this loud rock and roll experience, but it's, um, it's like stepping out of yourself, and yet stepping into yourself simultaneously, really. If you were to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, how acrimonious was your departure from the babies at the time? No, it wasn't. It was uh, a one. Okay. I mean, I think I think the band wanted to stay together, but Jonathan Cairn was joining Journey, and we were having no luck at all with the record company. You know, just none. We, they didn't like us, and we kept making records, and they kept sort of like <laughs> doing the wrong thing. So I think when we split, it was kind of everybody knew we'd been together for like six years. And we toured the world, you know, been all over Europe, Japan, all over America. And um, we'd done it. I mean, yeah. I felt as a writer, I had nothing else I could do. I mean, I just, I, at one point, I wrote a mini rock opera. I mean, I was writing all different sorts of things and having a ball. But there came a time when we we just knew we weren't going to make it any bigger. And it was time to call it, you know. John, what would you want people to know about the time that you played with Ringo Starr and uh, were part of the All-Star Band? 
Well, family Ringo was the strangest thing because it's Ringo, <laughs> you know. I mean, honestly, I was offered this acting role on Broadway, and I was really thinking about it. I mean, New York City to go and stay there again and be a New Yorker and be on stage and, and uh, play a part. I was really interested in doing something that was that different. David Bowie had done it, and I thought that would be something that would really be new. But when Ringo rang up, it was no question, really. I mean, I thought about it briefly, mm -hmm. but I was so influenced by the Beatles as a kid. I thought it would be full circle to go and play with him. It would make something make sense that was unfinished. I'd never met him. So, so I signed up, and it was like seven weeks of touring across America, um, flying in a private jet between shows and you know, running to the van after the gig. And it was a bit like Beatlemania. But it was interesting to play with him. And, uh, I mean, how many people can say they played with the Beatle? I mean, it's just one of those things that I said yes to. I couldn't, I couldn't say no. John Waite presents an evening in concert called 40 Years of Missing You at the Rialto Theatre on Thursday, March 7th. A Conversation with Edith Head is a chance for the audience to come as close to meeting the iconic Hollywood costume designer as is possible. Show creator Susan Clausen has been transforming herself into Edith Head for 22 years, having performed the one-woman show all over the world. This month, she's bringing it back home to the Invisible Theater, and Clausen says that Edith Head is an important figure to be remembered during Women's History Month. Edith Head was a woman well ahead of her times. She considered herself to be an executive woman. When she first started in 1923, women had just recently got the vote, and it was definitely a boys' club. She taught herself how to draw. She worked her way up. She was a brilliant woman without a background in art, her background was in, in languages, a master's degree from Stanford. But she absorbed everything and became the only woman to head a costume department at a major studio. And that would have been Paramount, where she was for 44 years. Her list of nominations is staggering. People are still talking about these movies. We talked a little bit before this interview about Audrey Hepburn being someone that Edith dressed in more than one film, but there was a little bit of controversy associated with Audrey and her favorite designer. That's exactly right. When Edith was given the assignment for Roman Holiday, she went to New York because Audrey was on Broadway and started fitting. Now, Audrey is known to have a very long neck has a style. She knows style. She knows her style. She was concerned Edith was going to change that. They worked well on Roman Holiday. She won the Academy Award. Edith won the Academy Award. Sabrina came about, and she went to Paris to the house of Givenchy for all of the gowns. The famous Sabrina dress with the bateau neckline is the dress that has controversy swirling around it <laughs> because everyone thinks Givenchy designed it. It was fabricated and, and uh, crafted in Paris at the house of Givenchy. It's a Hollywood lore about who really designed it. And I actually have a little drawing 
that shows the sketch. And then Edith went on to do Funny Face and many where she was a supervisor. And as she says, you know, everybody has a stable of young artists working for them. When something's wrong, they get the blame. When it's right, they should get the credit. Well, Edith was the chief designer at Paramount. She got the credit and never mentioned Givenchy when the Academy Award was given for Sabrina. Susan, you are known as a very fashion-forward person, and you are blessed with a resemblance to Edith Head. But what do you find are the differences? What do you have to modulate about yourself when you assume the character of Edith Head for these stage appearances? Edith is very different in her outward expressions. I'm far more expressive than Edith. I talk faster than Edith. I gesture more than Edith. Edith was controlled, certainly. Because it was a boys' club, she really had to play the game better than anyone, and she got along with everyone. You know, as she says, you know, everyone talks in the, the 30s, the 40s, or the 50s like they do today, but people kept their mouths shut. And Lucille Ball said this about Edith. She said, Edith knows all of our secrets, but she'll never tell. And there really has not been a kiss and tell book about Edith Head. Edith was very discreet. So when we were putting the the production together, 22 years, if you can believe, I've been touring and doing the show, we had to find the things that would be controversial because she was so media savvy. She was syndicated 35 movie magazines. She was on radio. She was on TV. She did fashion shows, and the studios loved her for it. Tell us something about her long-running collaboration with Alfred Hitchcock. It's very interesting. Their first film was Notorious for many reasons, but it was also named Notorious. (laughs) And they clicked. As Edith says, with every director, you have a special language. Now, Hitch was very detailed. When you got the script, you saw exactly what he wanted. He would describe Grace Kelly. He said, I want her to look like a piece of Dresden china. And so Edith followed that. They became great friends. She was borrowed from Paramount when he was doing Tippi Hedren in The Birds. And like in the, in the film, obviously we know there were very few costumes, but there were multiples of that. She spent $5,000 on the budget for the costumes in that film and $25,000 for the personal appearance gowns. But she and Hitch were just tight as can be. She designed all of the Hitchcock blondes, not all of the Hitchcock films. She didn't do Psycho, but Rear Window. And of course, the ultimate was Grace Kelly. And she and Grace were great friends also. And it was thanks to Alfred Hitchcock in 1967 when Edith's contract was not renewed at Paramount it's because of her friendship with Alfred Hitchcock and Lou Wasserman that she maneuvered her way over to Universal for the last 14 years of her life. Well, Suze, when you are in character as Edith and on stage, you are interacting with the audience. You're taking questions on the spot. How does that feel for you as a performer? I love it. It's really a conversation. So when people say, how do you do a one-person show and not get bored for 22 years, everyone 
is different. Every single performance because of that energy that the audience brings to it. So if Edith sees someone that she knows, like when we were in Palm Springs last year, Bob Mackey was in the audience. Now, Bob was a sketch artist for Edith. And I know him socially, and he helped us in research. But I, you know, when Edith came in, and Bob was right there, and I said I introduced him as my good friend, Bob Mackey, and he was a sketch artist for me. Did Donovan's Reef, and you know, Bob, I always thought you showed potential. So the audience laughed, and it just it opens it up. And Edith does chat. Uh, she has been known to. Uh, give out little approvals when she likes what someone is wearing and also might make comment if she doesn't like what someone is wearing. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really fun. What you find out, it's not just about film. It's not just about fashion. But you understand the tenacity, the drive of this woman who had a 60-year career worked on 1,131 films, redefined herself in every decade. And that to me shows why it's important for this kind of piece to be done in March as Women's History Month, but every month is Women's History Month. But young people understand, men understand, because she had to keep her vulnerabilities on the inside. And people talk about the glasses. You know, she always had a blue tint. Some was because of that's the way you could tell true color in black and white. And the other was the darker glass that she wore. People couldn't tell what she was thinking. And she became her inscrutable self. When I saw you perform as Edith, a great piece of advice that you share was if you really want to assess your own fashion outlook, put a bag over your head. Now, cut eye holes, but put it back over your head and look at yourself in the mirror. And that way, you take yourself out of the equation a little bit because we are all inclined to look ourselves in the eyes when we see ourselves in mirrors. What kind of feedback have you gotten about that piece of advice? People love it. And it is actually based on an Edward R. Murrow interview, you know, person to person. They went up to her house, she and her husband. She's sitting there totally poised. Her little sewing machines are there, and she whips out this brown paper bag. She puts it on her head, and I just transcribed it. You can't write this. It was brilliant, and people love it. And Edith has been known to give the bag to maybe a certain gentleman in the office just to be helpful for him to improve his looks because she really did makeovers long before they coined the term. You know, we like to say before Project Runway, there was Edith Head. My guest was Susan Clausen. A conversation with Edith Head returns to the Invisible Theater March 7th through the 10th. Voices Uncensored. Cooperating instead of competing. Telling instead of lecturing. Listening instead of eavesdropping. Compassion, not judgment. Acceptance, not censorship. Celebrating identities, not shaming. 
risking exposure, not hiding, paying attention instead of zoning out. That's what makes community storytelling unique and transformational. That's Tucson resident, author, and workshop facilitator Penelope Starr, reading from her book, The Radical Act of Community Storytelling, Empowering Voices in Uncensored Events. Starr is the founder of a Tucson organization that is about to celebrate its 20th anniversary. Odyssey Storytelling has been providing a valuable venue in this community since March of 2004, and it's introduced hundreds of people with stories to tell to an eager audience. Next, Tony Paniagua talks with Star about story sharing and legacy, which is also the theme for Odyssey's monthly gathering that's happening on March 7th in downtown Tucson. Penelope Starr, the founder of Odyssey Storytelling in Tucson, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I know you are not originally from Tucson, but when you moved here, you decided you wanted to establish this organization. Can you tell us what inspired you to do that? Well, I was at an event very similar to this in San Francisco that my daughter-in-law started called Porchlight Storytelling. And I was so thrilled with the honesty and the integrity of the people who were speaking. And I was in the audience and I was experiencing the recognition that people were uh, identifying with the stories, they were talking among themselves, they were just having such a good time. And I thought, this is something that Tucson needs. So I came back to Tucson, and within six weeks, we put on the first Odyssey Storytelling Show. For people who may listen to NPR and the show that's called The Moth, is it something similar to that, would you say? Um, Porchlight was based on The Moth. I based Odyssey on Porchlight. But it's a little bit different because The Moth is really geared towards more professional people. I wanted it to be more democratic. I wanted it to be everybody had an opportunity to tell their story. What we try to do is have variety and we try for diversity. Every month, six people tell 10-minute personal stories to an audience on a theme, and every month the theme changes. We've been meeting the first Thursday of the month at the screening room. People know the theme in advance, and there's also a rehearsal the week before the show. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, The rehearsal is to kind of teach people how to tell a story. It's not an innate skill. A lot of times people need to know that a story needs a beginning, a middle, and an end. And even more importantly, it needs a point. So we give people the opportunity to try out their stories um, and give and get feedback from each other. Because this is an activity that a lot of people really don't expect to do ever, perhaps. And they're afraid of it. And they overcome their fear, and that's exciting to see. One of the most common phobias we hear. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) And how many people approximately would you say have you had along the way? Well, I did a little math, and I figured we had have had in the 20 years at least 1,400 stories. A lot of people will come back to the stage and tell more than once. So I'm going to guess somewhere between 800 and 1,200 people have taken the stage at Odyssey to tell their stories. Penelope, so why do you think it's so important about a single voice telling a true story? And not only in the moment, but moving forward for Odyssey storytelling. I think the structure inspires honesty and 
intimacy comes from that. And that's something that we don't get in our everyday lives, that kind of real connection. Looking back over the past 20 years and what you created here in this community, how would you describe that emotion? My feeling is gratitude to the people who have kept it going. Because this is something I find exhilarating, but it's also kind of gratifying to know other people value it enough to put their time and energy into keeping these things coming for people in Tucson. And now Penelope Starr shares a story about her own perspective on legacy. I'm always surprised when someone asks me about my legacy. It's not something I think about, but maybe I should. My father, Gus Powelka, was an artist, illustrator, inventor, toy designer, and a Mr. Fix-It. And my mother, Ruth Powelka, was a metalsmith and jeweler. They were both generous, loving souls. When they died, I cleaned out their house and found things I couldn't throw away. My father's beautiful paintings grace the walls of my family. We share my mother's handmade jewelry. I have letters and photos stored in a closet and two large plastic bins with my father's goofy patented inventions, like a game he invented called Jailbreak, where the players are handcuffed to the board. It never took off. Is that my father's legacy? Are the things my parents left behind my inheritance? Or is legacy something intangible? They taught me to be true to myself, to trust my instincts, and that I could do anything I set my mind on. They were always available and supportive of my harebrained schemes. I know what unconditional love feels like. They have both been gone many years, and I still carry their memory with me every day. It got me to thinking, what about my legacy? What do I have to bequest? I've always been a little uncomfortable with the thought of legacy because I'm not someone who thinks into the future. My vision is either in the moment or two or three steps ahead. I started Odyssey Storytelling as a creative exploration and it turned out to be my gift to Tucson. It was a huge learning curve and a labor of love. I didn't know it would last, but nonetheless, I persisted. And I'm thrilled that Odyssey is celebrating 20 years of sharing Tucson stories. Is that my legacy? I wrote two books, The Radical Act of Community Storytelling, because I passionately believe in the power of storytelling. And after writing nonfiction, I turned to fiction, taking classes at Pima Community College to learn what I didn't know, struggling, yet I persevered. My soon-to-be-published novel, Desert Haven, is an ode to adventurous, outrageous women. Is that my legacy? Or is it my ability to bring people together my legacy? Is it my 20-year commitment celebrating and supporting LGBTQ older adults with Southern Arizona Senior Pride? Or maybe my years as a mixed-media and fiber artist? What will I be remembered for? I wonder what my children and grandchildren will consider my legacy. Hopefully, I've been able to pass on the values of respect, understanding, acceptance, and appreciation that I learned from my parents. I wonder what my influence was on them. I was raised with strong moral values and the understanding that our afterlife 
is how we live on in the memories of the people we have touched. I'm motivated by a desire to make things better and to add to the beauty of the world. How do you measure a life? Is it the things we leave behind? When you Google legacy, the first thing that pops up is legacy.com, the world's largest obituary database. Do we only have a legacy when we're dead? In that case, it's not time for my legacy. Odyssey Storytelling's anniversary show, Legacy, is next Thursday night, March 7th, at the Screening Room in downtown Tucson. We have a link on our website for more information. And here on Spotlight, we're soon to begin our own storytelling tradition. Beginning March 21st and continuing on the third Thursday of each month, Tony Paniagua will be introducing you to a new story as told by a person in our community. I had the pleasure of interviewing award-winning and best-selling author Luis Alberto Urea before on this show. And much like his writing style, he is a warm, friendly, and funny storyteller. A select audience will get to experience Urea's sense of humor firsthand next week when he makes an appearance in Tucson alongside other writers of renown at a charity event presented by the local Brandeis National Committee. That gave me the opportunity to revisit this conversation where Luis Alberto Urea shares his undying love and respect for the first author to truly recognize his potential. It was the pioneering science fiction writer Ursula K. Le Guin. I was in college. It was 1977. My father had just died terribly in Mexico. And, uh, you know, it was kind of in a, a very lost place. And I didn't know how to deal with it except to write about it. And at the same time that I was struggling with this, uh, Le Guin was brought in as a guest faculty member at University of California, San Diego. And I gave the story about my father's death to my professor, who was responsible for bringing Le Guin. And uh, he took my story to her. You know, this was unbeknownst to me. I had no idea what was going on. So he told me she wants to meet you. And talk about your story. I thought, damn, man, I can't do this. So my professor took me to the apartment they'd rented for her in La Jolla. And um, it was to me like the inside of the album cover for Led Zeppelin four, where the (laughs) acolyte is climbing a cliff, you know, to the wizard. That was what it was like. She was upstairs. And I walked up thinking, I'm going to die. (laughs) I had never met anybody famous. That was it. And the door opened, and I didn't know what I expected, but there was this pixie standing there. She was quite tiny, and she had that famous sort of page boy haircut going gray. But the thing that just flabbergasted me was not only did in one hand she have what looked like a highball or some sort of whiskey with a couple of rocks, in the other hand, she had a pipe, like a Meerschaum pipe, and she was puffing away on it. It's very Gandalf, and she looked at me and she said, Luisito, like that. And I thought, (laughs) oh my God, man. And she said, come in, come in. She had the mimeograph, which should date me, on the table of the story. And she said, tell me about your father's death. So I started babbling. And she listened, very listening. And she said, now tell me about you. So I, you know, told her some things about myself. And she said, I I really like your story. And I said, oh, that's so great. Thank you. And she said, I I would like to buy it. 
And to point out how naive I was at the time, I said, well, why do you want to buy it? You already have it right there. <laughs> and she said, no, no, Luisito, no. I want to publish it. I'm editing an anthology. And I thought, are you serious? And uh, so that's how our relationship began. It was a book called Edges, one of those pocket books. You know, back when books were 75 cents. You bet. <laughs> and... You know, the story around that has always made me so happy because, you know, my friends weren't intellectual guys or even literary guys. They were mostly rock musicians and or wannabe rock musicians. And we hung out in a donut shop, Winchell's Donuts. And, uh, you know, we were hanging out in the donut shop, a couple of us, and the, one of the dudes came in. He's like, dudes, the dude over here's book is totally in the bookstore man and we all freaked out what yeah down at walden books dude so we got in his van and we went down there i was flabbergasted that it was out you know and there it was yeah and all the dudes bought one Excellent. and uh that's that's where my career started because we're in line and each guy who bought it would turn to me and say you gotta sign it man and as i was signing these paperbacks for my homies i thought this is really good this is cool <laughs> stuff man and there were six of us total and when i was signing the fifth book someone tapped me on the shoulder and i looked and it was a mom you know a suburban mom buying something and she said to me excuse me are you somebody <laughs> <laughs> well what a weighted question that was and I said, yes, I am. And she bought one. And that was the first autograph I'd ever given to a stranger. Yeah, Ursula's hand always on, on me. That was a story about how it all got started for acclaimed writer Luis Alberto Urea. Next week, on Thursday, March 7th, Urea will be a guest of the Tucson chapter of the Brandeis National Committee for an event beginning at 9.15 a.m. at Skyline Country Club. He'll be joined by novelist Heather Webb, Chris Impey, Distinguished Professor from the UA Department of Astronomy, and Rebecca Senf, the Head Curator for the Center for Creative Photography at the U of A. There will be a panel moderated by Tom McNamara of PBS Channel 6, a luncheon, and silent auction. Proceeds will benefit Sustaining the Mind, a Brandeis National Committee fund supporting a Brandeis University research program that combats neurodegenerative diseases including ALS, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. You can find a link for reservations on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Alicia Vasquez. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.